Dr. Neff, thank you for joining us in the safe space. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's such an honor to be here. I know that you have a practice and you have expertise. And tell us about yourself. Yes. Yeah, so I am a clinical psychologist based in Portland, Oregon, and I have kind of a classic later in life neurodivergent story in the sense that I was actually just a couple of weeks away from graduating with my doctorate when I discovered that one of my children was autistic, which led to the discovery that I was autistic and then later to the discovery of ADHD. So I shifted my practice and my work to really focus on neurodivergence because I realized there's something we're missing in the mental health world about how neurodivergence can show up, particularly among women and people of color and trans people. So a lot of the work I do is around increasing awareness of the different ways neurodivergence can show up because it often gets misdiagnosed as personality disorders or bipolar and then creating wellness resources for neurodivergent adults and people. That's wonderful. And we know that there are tools that we provide to our clients, to our patients, to support them through the day, and that how you start your day can really organize your mood and the direction that Mm -hmm. you take throughout the day. So please tell us about some of the tips that you utilize uh, with your patients and in your practice to help people to start the day on the right foot. Absolutely. First, I just love how you talk about organizing mood because that really is what we're doing. We're kind of becoming an architect of our day, of our mood. And I think when we think about it that way, it gives us back some of that agency. So first off, I think just the word routine is really important, right? Like routines essentially are habits that we do over time. What are so powerful about habits is that they become shortcuts for them. And so that's less decisions we have to make. For people with ADHD, for people going through hormonal fluctuations, decisions can be really overwhelming. So first of all, I don't care what the routine is, just having a routine is really powerful. More specifically, I've become really interested in this idea of kind of a low arousal, low dopamine morning, some way to, how are you kind of mindfully setting the tone for the day? I think especially for those of us who you know, have ADHD or maybe anxious and go through the day in a rushed way, setting the tone with something that is grounding is really powerful. That's not going to be mindfulness or meditation for everyone. For someone with ADHD, that actually can be a very stressful experience to try to quiet the brain. So something that's sensory soothing, I would say, is a great way to start the day. For some people, that'll be stretching or movement or writing or meditation. Some other practices, these are a bit more pragmatic, but if working memory is a strain or a struggle, things like having a launching pad, this is often done with ADHD children, but I still find it helpful as an adult. I lose my keys and my phone and essentials all the time. So having a place where this is what you need to get out the door can be really, really helpful because if we're spending those last five minutes rushing for the keys or the phone, that rush energy is going to go with us. Some other things that can be helpful similar to the launching pad would be like a visual checklist. As a lot of, especially those of us with ADHD, are very have very visual brains. So if you know there's some things you tend to forget or you forget to do, having a visual checklist that's right by where you leave can be really helpful. Other pragmatic organizational things would be things like having timers. There's something within the ADHD literature, it used to be called time blindness. The blind community has asked us to stop using that. And I Mm -hmm. think it's time we update our language. So time perception difficulties, we just tend to lose track of time. So if that's 
part of what's making someone's morning routine stressful. Having alarms that go off that kind of move you through the steps can be really helpful because it's that extra feedback loop of like, remember, time is passing. It's time to go to the next part of your routine. Have you heard of optimistic timing? No, it's that. <laughs> it's when you think you have more time than you do. <laughs> oh, yeah. I do that all the time. <laughs> it's like the glass half full versus empty. Yeah. It's like, I have more time. So one yeah. of the things that I readily use in my practice is mm -hmm. setting the clock a little faster. And because yes. sometimes people with optimistic timing think they have mm -hmm. more time. So, you know, let's give them more time, you know? <laughs> so I do that to myself, but then I have to correct it every few months because then I start relying on like, oh, I know that clock is fast. So I have to like tweak it every couple of months before my brain adjusts to it. I love the idea of putting things in a practical place and planning mm -hmm. because what you're essentially saying is that you're planning for the worst case scenario. A lot of times people who have hormonal fluctuations do the perimenopausal mm -hmm. mood changes and they have problems with finding things or misplacing things or just short-term memory. Having something in one place and knowing where it is can decrease your anxiety. Similar to Absolutely. ADHD because organizational challenges happen with ADHD and have, knowing where something's going to be, mm -hmm. just it just really does go a long way because think about how much time you spend looking for your keys, your phone so much time and then and then not just so much time but like the secondary narrative that comes online for people mm -hmm. of like i've lost my keys again and that can trigger a lot of shame-based narratives right we start telling ourselves like i'm such a fill in the blank mm -hmm. and so if you're starting your day not just with the stress of looking for your keys but also with that secondary shame-based narrative talk about organizing your mood that's not a great way to that's not a great tone to be setting for your day one of my really good friends is a is a anchor woman. She does the weather. So we we talk about forecasting the weather because mm -hmm. it, I mean rain can throw things off. How many times have we heard of people being late because oh I had to run back and get an umbrella or I got drenched I had oh, to go back in yeah. and get a, a rain jacket. Even forecast looking at the weather forecast can help you to plan or having an umbrella already packed, like put in your bag or your book bag or your, your purse, or just even, you know, in your car, if you have a car, if you're in an mm -hmm. area that you drive at, like having that kind of uh, foreshadowing and that planning helps you. Absolutely. And that kind of ties into the routines at night, right? Of like setting mm -hmm. yourself up for the next day, looking at that schedule, looking at that weather, setting up our morning routine well is a lot of a successful morning routine. I love that weather forecasting idea. Well, when she and I talked about it, we talked about forecasting your mood using the weather because a lot, I was noticing that a lot of my, my patients were getting depressed on rainy days. And then I, you know, I started looking at weather and she was saying that, yeah, like barometric pressures can change your, um, the achiness in your bones and like people's mm. uh, arthritis flares up. And when you're in pain, you have, you know, more depression, you're more drained. And so people get like literally more depressed with the rain. I was like, mm. wow. So we need to start forecasting the, the weathers to forecast our mood. And then it led into this whole other area of like planning for umbrellas and rain boots and so forth. I love how you talk about planning for the morning starts the night before. So we're going to jump right into the nighttime routine because really you're right. You know, the night before mm -hmm. sets you up for the next day. Absolutely. Absolutely. So like, for example, one thing I've always done that's been so helpful is prepping my clothes the night before. Again, back to that idea of like decision paralysis. 
the last thing you want to be doing in the morning when you're on a schedule is be like, I don't have anything to wear. What do I wear? So prepping, whether it's clothing, whether it's food, whether it's that launching pad area. Now I'm going to add, you know, weather <laughs> forecasting to that. <laughs> uh, the other thing for people with working memory difficulties, whether that's due to ADHD or hormonal fluctuations, actually looking at the schedule for the next day and kind of planning through, okay, what do I, what do I need for that? Again, maybe setting alarms of for people who, who really that they need that extra feedback loop, setting their alarms for the next day can be another step. And be a bit playful with the alarms. Sometimes yeah. I'll ask my patients, can I hear the alarm? And it's like the, I'm like, can you, can we try something more magical? Can we try something more beautiful, more, you know, like lyrical? <laughs> I love that. I actually do something similar because especially for a lot of my clients, there's the sensory piece, right? So to the jarringness of a lot of those alarms, it's like, I do not want that being my reminder. But if it's a playful kind of sound that's gentle and it's like, this is just a reminder, you've you know, we're going to move on in five minutes to the next thing. That's so much more pleasant than some of the alarms that are out there. And with the nighttime routine, getting good deep sleep is so important. Mm -hmm. And when we think about planning for the next day, you're absolutely right. When we plan our sleep hygiene out and we think yep. about us, ourselves as living, breathing organisms that need the right temperature, that mm -hmm. need to feel safe and comfy, you know, to have the, the soft sheets. Sometimes I'll ask um, to, uh, people to describe like, what does the bedroom look like? Tell me about the sheets. How do they feel? And it's like, I never really thought about my sheets. Mm -hmm. And then people will go and actually go out and purchase softer sheets because the bedroom ritual is so important, you know? I love it. So you have what I would call a sensory lens. You're considering the sensory environment of the sleep, which I actually find not to be very common for non-neurodivergent clinicians or people. So I absolutely adore that you have that sensory lens and you're already thinking about like, how do we not just make this okay, but make this a pleasant experience that people look forward to and that, that's, that's nurturing. In some cultures, sleep is huge you know here when we think about sleep we're thinking about oh that person's lazy but in some cultures mm. sleep is like revered you know in some asian cultures if they see someone sleeping it, it means that they worked hard you know it's like and in some huh. cultures sleeping is considered a, a thing that needs to be protected uh, because rest is restorative and there's no shame in your sleep game so, so with my clients, it's like, okay, let's pick out some pajamas that we really like that we get excited about, you know, that, that make us look forward to this sleep experience. Because we think of sleep as a time when we're like, our brain's off, we don't remember it, but it's not true. Our brains have a lot of activity during sleep. So let's make sleep an experience that is important and revered because it sets us up for the next day. Mm -hmm. I, so I'm having a thought as I'm listening to you talk that I, I really like this line of thinking of like, what is your psychology of sleep in a sense of what are your beliefs about what sleep is? Is this, mm -hmm. this annoying thing that your body just demands? Is it something that you've earned? Is it pleasurable? Is it something to be like respected and honored? I love that. And I think that's probably a really powerful place to start of just like, what are your beliefs about sleep, the function of it? Like, how do you feel about it? It's, it's really interesting. And sleep is a challenge with anxiety. 
And some people with ADHD, mm-hmm. sleep is a challenge. And some Big autistic challenge. individuals, it's a challenge. And we know yep. in perimenopause, it's a really big challenge because the mm-hmm. hormonal fluctuations change the architecture of the sleep. So we do want to respect sleep. <laughs> That's a lot of the work I do. For neurodivergent people, we, we have a lot of sleep issues. I have a very love-hate relationship with sleep, as do most neurodivergent people I know, because it tends to be such an area of stress that a lot of the work is about how do we kind of redeem your relationship to sleep so that it isn't the thought of going to bed isn't as stressful. And and we know this from CBTI Mm -hmm. for insomnia, that just if sleep is a stressful thought, that's going to make sleep a lot harder. So, yeah. So we talked about waking up. We talked about sleeping. Let's talk about organizing our mood. People may say like, okay, what does that mean? You can't plan your mood. However, we know that there are some people during the day that just know how to push that button. It could be a coworker. It could be, you know, let's say we think about the past week in New York City, especially you're running to catch the bus and you're like on the, on the train at times and you're just like, okay, there are certain scenarios that I can think of that really dysregulate me or mm-hmm. lead to me feeling dysregulated. So how can we plan for this? How do we plan for organizing our mood? I think this is going to sound probably pretty basic, but so much of it comes back to like knowing ourselves, like exactly knowing what are those hot spots, what are those triggers that get us in a stress state, and then what are our soothers, and being really kind of tuned into what those are. So, like for me, mindfulness is huge. I'm a really big fan of third wave CBT, so ACT, acceptance commitment therapy. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of mindfulness on the go. Like I mentioned earlier, if I were to try and do a meditation, it would be actually really aggravating because my ADHD brain would not like that. But I do a ton of tagging of like, okay, this script is playing right now. Okay, that happened and that activated this. That sort of self-attunement, self-validation as you're experiencing hot moments, I think is one of the most powerful ways to organize our mood because we're narrating, like here's what's happening. And, And then it gives us agency back of, and what am I going to do about it? Maybe I have some sensory soothers with me. Maybe I have some like some earbuds and some music and I can distract and ground through the sensory experience of music. But I think a lot of it starts with knowing self and then that ability to be a good self narrator of our experience. And also planning break. A lot of mm-hmm. the times we think about when students have accommodation, so they may have in their IEP or 504, you have break time, you have bathroom time, but then those things kind of disappear when you grow up. Your body still needs to get those break times. So yeah, think about like that. Okay, I'm going to plan to go to the bathroom. So many times my patients would be like, I just went the whole day and I didn't even go to the bathroom, you know, and mm-hmm. they weren't listening to their bodies and their bodies were saying, I have to go to the bathroom, but they were just working right through it and validating how they felt. Mm-hmm. So plan the time for taking a break getting like walking around kids have to get the wiggles out so adults we have to get the wiggles out too eating in a place that you actually acknowledge the food that you have the time to taste the food to describe the food so that you're grounded so that you're treating your body like you're a human being you know and not just this machine that gets has to get work done and and do all these things and these are little ways that you can plan that help you to physiologically regulate and then ultimately hopefully regulate your emotions. I love that you take it back to the physiological regulation. I talk about that a lot with my work with neurodivergent folks. Cause- well, I learned about it. Um, and I, I really think about these things because I started off as an anesthesiologist and then um, went into psychiatry training. And with psychiatry, you start with adult and then you do child. 
And I think about the way that the body runs all the time. So for example, I, I look at hands a lot because I look at people's veins because I used to have to put veins into people. So I think about, oh, like, you know, I wonder if they're drinking enough water because their veins are flat. But I know that if your body isn't running appropriately, if you're dehydrated, if you're not listening to your heart and how it feels in your chest, if you're not thinking about the way that you're breathing, maybe you're a shallow breather because you're anxious. Maybe you're in a rush, so you're not taking the time to do some diaphragmatic breathing. Mm -hmm. Then if you can't regulate yourself physiologically, how can you begin to really meaningfully regulate your emotions? So we we do think about the mind-body connection a lot. I love that. And I, yeah, you bring such a holistic, just in talking to you, I hear like how holistic you are thinking about people and emotions and mood. And first of all, it just, it's really refreshing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you can put it on your schedule. I'm going to yeah. drink this many, like, that's why I love water bottles. Cause it mm. makes it a very visual goal. Like I'm going to drink three of these in a day or however many, or I'm going to put it on my scheduler to actually eat or what, whatever it is. Exactly. We were talking earlier about high functioning depression and how a lot of the people that come on my podcast are very high functioning. They are high achievers. They've accomplished so much in my work with high functioning depression. It's really in the clinical studies, looking at people who may have had some components of depression, but don't meet criteria for a major depressive disorder because they're actually high functioning. They don't identify being in distress. They are having these significant symptoms, but they're not meeting criteria for major depressive disorder. So I asked my guests, what was a time in your life where on the outside, it looked like you were doing so much, you were a rock star. People were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're doing all this. But then really you were struggling on the, on the inside. And how did you get through that? And for me, I'm going to give you a slightly more nuanced answer probably because part of for me, a lot of my high functioning depression throughout my life has been tied into the fact I was an undiagnosed autistic ADHD mm -hmm. human. So mm -hmm. I was at, like high functioning in my ADHD. The term high functioning autism is no longer uh, widely used within the autistic community, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. I won't get into now, but lower support needs, level one autism. So yeah, I'm not going to use the term high functioning, but I was masking a lot of my autism mm -hmm. and compensating for a lot of my mm -hmm. autism and a lot of my ADHD, which contributed to high functioning depression. Mm -hmm. For me, one of the ways that it showed up, I, I would say my doctoral program, I was teaching a lot because I was interested in going into academia. I was doing clinical work. I was doing classes. I was writing a book. I was presenting at different act events. So people would often say that to me, like, how do you do so much? What they weren't seeing was what was behind closed doors. And behind mm -hmm. closed doors, I was, I was crashed on my couch on the weekends. I was struggling to say coherent sentences at the end of the day. I was struggling to have meaningful relationships with my children or my partner because every ounce of me was spent in recovery mode at home. In the past, it did lead to negative, kind of negative coping, some of that avoidance coping that we sometimes see when someone's internalizing the pain. For me, my exit to that life was in discovering my neurodivergence and then creating a new life, organizing a new life that helps me organize my mood and my, my rhythms in a way that attunes to my brain style and my sensory needs. You know, knowing what you're working with is so important because when you don't know, if you can't name it, then you just feel so confused and unsafe. It's like being mm -hmm. in the dark and not knowing what's out there. And then you're just imagining the worst. And when someone turns that light on and you know what you're working with, what you're, what you're dealing with, then you feel yeah. so much more empowered. 
Absolutely. And and when you have a, a name and a narrative to wrap mm-hmm. around your experience of like, okay, this makes sense. I think that also helps move us away from a lot of the shame that, mm-hmm. that we're so vulnerable to. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. This is so wonderful. Tell us where we can find you and about some of your upcoming projects. Yeah, so people can find me at either on my website or Instagram, Neurodivergent Insights. On Instagram, it's neurodivergent underscore insights. My website is neurodivergentinsights.com. I have a book coming out in March of 2024, Self-Care for Autistic People. And then I've got lots of resources up on my website for people looking for wellness resources that are adapted for the neurodivergent person. I'm so excited about your book. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you.